Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 22. In chapter 21, we observe Jesus rejecting the whole system of religion that had grown up around the temple in Jerusalem. They had missed the whole point. They had become obsessed with minutia, and they had mismanaged all the blessings and all the gifts that had been given by the Lord. They were a dry and withered fig tree that offered absolutely nothing to the poor and weary of the world. And Jesus presented himself as God's intended replacement. Now, we have to be careful whenever we use that word. Replacement theology is a slur that is often used to discredit certain theological positions. So I want to be clear. I am not saying that the church replaces Israel. I'm saying that Jesus replaces Israel. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is everything. If the New Testament is clear about anything, it is clear about that. And if you're reading the Bible and coming up with something else that is central other than Jesus, you're reading it wrong. Jesus is saying to the poor travelers in this world, don't bother going to the temple. You won't find anything there. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I said, if the New Testament is clear about anything, it is clear about that. Jesus is offering himself as an alternative to the entire Jewish system. And the current leaders of the Jewish system are not confused by this at all. They understand what Jesus is saying. At the end of chapter 21, Matthew says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So they understand what Jesus is saying. And and that's why they begin to take steps to arrest and kill him. There are only two options on the table here, and the chief priests and the Pharisees intend to eliminate one of them. That's the story we're reading here in chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. We should obviously understand this as a third parable directed against the Jewish leaders. This time, 
presumably after many or most of them have departed. Much of the imagery is similar. This time, there's a king who stands for God. And again, messengers of the king are treated shamefully and even killed by those we would have expected to be guests of honor at the upcoming feast. That the king will send troops to destroy their city seems to look forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The gathering in of both good and bad reminds us that God's grace is often surprising and that many who are last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. The story has a surprising climax. We pick it up in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. D.A. Carson helps us understand what's going on here. He says, whether one is good or bad, there is an appropriate attire for this wedding feast, closed quote. R.T. France says something very similar. He says, Though entry to God's salvation is free for all, it is not, therefore, without standards or to be taken lightly. It was the claim to belong without an appropriate change of life which characterized the old Israel and brought about its rejection. The new people of God must not fall into the same error. Closed quote. That's the main point being made in that final paragraph. We'll be surprised by who is and who isn't included in the kingdom of heaven, but they will all have gained entry in the same manner. They will all be garbed in the robe of righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. Anyone not so arrayed will be bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is an obvious attempt to turn the crowd against Jesus, making him easier to apprehend. Paying taxes to Rome was deeply unpopular. If Jesus supported it, he would likely lose a great many of his followers. On the other hand, if he forbade the paying of taxes, it would make it a lot easier to build a case against him that would be compelling to Pilate. So it was a win-win from the perspective of Jesus' opponents. But Jesus turns the encounter against them by asking for the coin with which the tax would be paid. Coins from the reign of Tiberius Caesar were considered blasphemous to most Jews in Jesus' day. They had an image of Tiberius on one side and the inscription, highest priest or pontiff maxim on the other. 
Therefore, no pious Jew would wish to handle one. The fact that they were able to produce one immediately put them on the wrong foot with the crowd. Jesus, brilliant saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, pleased the crowd and left his opponents no room to accuse him. This passage should also remind followers of Christ that we are not called to political insurrection. Caesar provides roads and services and therefore has a right to a certain share of our coin, just as God has a right to our worship, love, and service. The Apostle Paul further develops this obligation in Romans 13, 1-7. Jesus was no mere political revolutionary. That was never his way of bringing the kingdom. The story continues in verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. This is clearly a made-up story intended to embarrass Jesus. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife per se, and they did not credit the latter portions of the Old Testament as Scripture. Therefore, they found the notion of a personal resurrection preposterous, and they've invented this story to trap Jesus in what they perceive to be an indefensible position. Verse 29, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What an incredibly insightful saying that is. All error springs from the same source. He quotes to them actually from the part of the Bible they do claim to credit in order to show them that they don't really even understand the Bible that they read, nor do they understand the power of the God they claim to worship. He will surely keep the promises that he has made to his people. Be they alive at the present? or dead. This certainty assumes the resurrection. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is often referred to as the great commandment, obviously as a companion to the great commission. Jesus summarizes the kingdom ethic as love for God and love for neighbor. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. Verse 41. 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There were disputes in Judaism at that time as to whether there would be one Messiah or two. Some expected a Messiah in the line of David and a Messianic figure in the line of Levi, thus a a king and a priest. Jesus thus directs their attention to Psalm 110, a Psalm of David, wherein David refers to the Lord saying to my Lord, well, One of those, my lords, must be God, but who then is the other? It must be Messiah, David's son. That David calls him my lord suggests that he was greater than David, greater than just a king. As we read the psalm, we discover that he was also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thus, the Messiah is king and priest, and greater by far than his father David. If that's all in the Bible, then who do you teachers of the law, you scribes and rulers of the people, who do you say that the Messiah is? That's a good question. And no one could answer him a word. No wonder they dared ask him nothing further. Jesus is who he is. He is who the scriptures say he is, and he is always in control of every situation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.